speaker needs no introduction, so I'm just going to get right to it. It's great to see all of you here this morning, each and every one of you, and like to welcome you here and uh, just say that it is, it is good to be here worshiping God together with you this morning. Would you bow with me now as we enter God's Word together? Heavenly Father, thank you for life. Thank you for uh, young life especially, Lord, and for those, those energetic boys and the children you blessed our church family with. I thank you, Lord. And I pray, Father, that you would continue to bless this, your church family, with growth and new life. And I pray, Lord, that that growth and new life would happen in many ways, that it would begin here this morning, even in our hearts, that we would grow this morning for having met with you. For that is what we're here for. We want to meet with you, Lord, and we want to hear from you. And so I just pray, Lord, that you would open the ears of our, our heart, that we could hear from you, that we would meet with you, and that you would speak to us. So I pray, Lord, that you would anoint this message, that the words would be yours, I pray, and that you would speak through me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, if a picture was worth a thousand words, one look into their eyes told the story. It would tell you everything that you would really need to know. They were doomed, trapped between a rock and a hard place, both figuratively and literally. On one side of the four men was the city gate, locked and barred from within. And on the other side of them was the Aramean army, laying siege to their city. There they were, caught in the middle of no man's land, not welcome in their own city, not welcome, contracted the most dreaded and contagious of skin diseases, leprosy. Their, their skin was covered with white, pus-filled boils and other places where they'd been scratched raw. There they were, bandages, filthy, having even been changed in weeks. The, the stench, the aroma that came from them was indescribably horrific. And the, the bugs and the flies that were constantly swarming them through the heat of the day offered them no reprieve. The only way to get away from these was in the cold of the night when they would huddle together, shivering against the cold. And so, as if matters weren't already bad enough, they were also starving to death. As lepers, they were at the mercy of family members within the city, passing food to them through the city gates. But the city itself had already run out of food as well, as a result of the prolonged siege. Many of the inhabitants of the city, out of the sheer madness of desperation that comes from starvation, had even resorted to cannibalism. The story was beginning to circulate of the most horrific of incidents, where two mothers had agreed to survive by eating their sons. And having already cooked and eaten the first son, the second mother had hidden her son away and under these kinds of circumstances, what little food could be scrounged up would not be wasted on lepers. And they knew it. They hadn't been given a single scrap of food in days. Their bodies were emaciated. Ribs protruding, faces gaunt, eyes hollow. They knew that if they didn't do something, anything, that one by one, they would all be dead before the week was over. So that morning, through cracked and dried lips, they discussed their options. First, trying to get back into the city while that still meant certain starvation. 
Staying put where they were also meant the same, certain death, which only left the third option, going over to the enemy camp and surrendering to the Aramean army. If they had mercy on them and let them live, they would at least mean that they could maybe be at the outskirts of the camp and scrounge up some of the scraps of food that would be discarded with the garbage. That was their best-case scenario. But deep down, each of those four men knew that the odds of them being spared was highly unlikely. They knew that what was most likely was being shot down and riddled with arrows before they even reached the enemy camp. But at least... It would be a quick death, better than starvation. So as the sun set behind the horizon that night, they got up and slowly and painfully began hobbling toward the Aramean lines. As each step drew them closer and closer, they listened intently for the challenge of a sentry, or worse yet, the unmistakable hiss of arrows heading in their direction. But there was nothing, only an eerie silence as they moved closer and closer to the enemy lines. Finally, they came upon the first outpost of the enemy. No sentry was there. The post had been abandoned. How could this be? Was this some sort of a trap? And nervous and still desperate, they continued to move forward deeper into the camp. They enter, and soon they see a tent, and entering the first tent cautiously, they pull back one of the openings, and they peek inside, and no one's there. The tent is empty. In fact, as they look around the encampment, not one soldier can be seen in any direction. What is happening here? And as they look closer, they realize the signs of a hasty retreat are all around them. Weapons, armor, swords, personal belongings have been strewn haphazardly in all directions. Horses and mules are still tied up to the tents. Where is everyone? It looks like the entire army has vacated the camp. Is this some sort of a dream? Oh, but what was that smell? Oh, the smell of food. That was no dream. And in fact, if it was a dream, they were going to make the most of it. And so opening up the tent, they see the food inside, and they move in as fast as they possibly can and gorge themselves as only four starving men could. Choking and gorging and eating as fast as they possibly could they devoured food and drink until their bellies ached. And finally, having staved off their hunger for the moment, they began to take stock of their surroundings. What could be in those chests in the corner of the tent? And so going to investigate, they open it up, and their dream only gets crazier. Inside of the chests are treasure. There's fine clothing, silver and gold. They were rich, rich as kings. They couldn't believe it. But what were they going to do? Well, they had to make use of this treasure. What would they do? They would stash it and store it outside of the camp. And so quickly, they gather up as much of the treasure as they can, and they take it outside of the camp and hide it away. A second time, they enter back into the camp, and taking even more this time, they heap it up with gold and silver, and they exit the camp and once again stash it away. They were living their dream. But as the euphoria of the moment of just simply being alive began to sink in and, and, and the adrenaline began to wear off of their discoveries, they began to look around. And they began to look at each other. And they began to realize what they were doing. Here they had been, 
just a few hours before on the brink of starvation, almost certain of death that very same day. And they began to think of the miraculous reversal of fortunes. It dawned on them that they weren't the only ones who had been starving. In fact, an entire city was still starving to death behind the enemy, behind the gates, cannibalizing their own young, unaware that their deliverance had already occurred, unaware that the enemy had already been defeated and sent running, unaware that there was more than enough food just sitting there that the entire city could feast that very day. No, this wasn't just good news for them. This was good news for everyone. And here they were, selfishly hoarding it for themselves. And overcome with this conviction, they looked at each other and they said, What we are doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we are keeping it to ourselves. Many of you already know that that's a true story. It's recorded for us in 2 Kings chapter 7. And if you have your Bibles with you today, I want to encourage you to turn there with me. Or if you have your iPads or your iPhones or whatever it is that you use to access the Word, I want you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 7 with me. And if you're having trouble finding it, it comes after 1 Kings. I'll give you a little hint there. And if you don't have your Bibles, why not? This is church, after all. What do you think we're going to be studying here? All right, so turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 7. And let's pick up the story a little bit more in context. Because this story of the four lepers doesn't happen on its own. There's a wider story happening here. And so we're going to move back to chapter 6, and we're going to begin reading in verse 24. Sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. There was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried to him, saying, Help me, my lord the king. And the king replied, If the lord does not help you, where can I get help for you? From the, from the threshing floor, from the wine press? Then he asked her, What's the matter? And she answered, This woman said to me, Give up your son so we may eat him today, and tomorrow we'll eat my son. So we cooked my son and ate him. And the next day I said to her, Give up your son so we may eat him. But she had hidden him away. And when the king heard the woman's words, he tore his robes and he went along the wall, and the people looked, and there underneath he had on sackcloth. And he said, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if the head of Elijah, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Clearly, this isn't a story that we were taught in Sunday school. <laughs> in fact, I can still remember the very first time when, as a 12-year-old, I read that story for myself. To say I was shocked, appalled, would be putting it mildly. One thing I learned is that the Bible doesn't pull any punches. And interestingly enough, the king's name is not recorded in this story. He is simply referred to as the king. Parallel accounts and chronologies inform us that the king referred to in this story was King Jehoram. He is described as primarily a wicked king 
who ruled Israel for 12 tumultuous years in the 7th century B.C. This is a period when the kingdoms of Israel and Judah were divided, and Samaria was the nation of Israel's capital. It was also during this period that Elisha, not to be confused with Elijah, Elisha was the prophet of God to the nation of Israel. And so the responsibility of this siege of the Aramean army, which is modern-day Syria, the responsibility for them besieging the capital city of Samaria, it lays squarely at the feet of King Jehoram. But we read in the story that, like most politicians, he looks for someone else to blame, right? Nothing like passing the buck. Instead of taking responsibility for what was happening, these terrible events of people cannibalizing their own young, rather than saying, this is my fault, he wants to pin the blame on someone else, and Elisha seems like a good target. So after hearing this gut-wrenching story, he is so overwhelmed and angry that he tears his royal robes and swears an oath that Elisha's head will be on a silver platter by that night. Passing the buck. Heads have got to roll. Literally. We use that phrase today. But think about it. In ancient times, kings had the authority to make heads roll for real. But Elisha keeps his head and he outsmarts the king by barring the door to his house. Obviously, he's either smart enough to realize what's happening or God forewarns him in some way. And so he bars the door to his house. And now King Jehoram is so maddened that while pounding on the prophet's door, he shouts out, verse 33, This disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? So classic, right? (laughs) When all else fails, blame the Lord. Blame God. Because he did this, or he didn't do that, or this happened in my life, or that happened, or this didn't happen. It must be God's fault. Classic. Listen to Elisha's response. Chapter 7, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, a seah of flour will sell for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Now, without getting into conversions... I'm not good at, you know, metric to English, gallons to liters kind of stuff to begin with, so I'm not going to bother getting into all of the conversions from ancient measurements to modern. But I'll just get down to the gist of it. What Elisha is saying is that within 24 hours, there is going to be so much food available in the city that it is going to be selling in the market for discount prices. He's saying that there's going to be so much quality food that it's going to be selling for rock-bottom, dirt-cheap prices that people just had never even heard of, let alone considered that it could happen within a 24-hour period. And consider now that for a starving city in the middle of a lengthy siege with a massive army still encamped outside its walls, this claim by Elisha was not only audacious, it was absurd. It was downright laughable. And that's exactly what happens. Listen to the king's officer who responds in verse 2. The king's officer who was with the king coming to the door of Elisha's house, he hears Elisha's claim and he says in verse 2, Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, could this happen? Good question. What do you think? An audacious claim, something spectacular. 
And he asked the question, even if God should open the very floodgates of heaven itself, could this be possible? The New Living Translation, it puts it even more bluntly. It says this, um, uh, that uh, the officer says, that couldn't happen even if the Lord opened the windows of heaven. He is saying it's impossible. It's not even in the realm of possibility. And now, of course, I want you to just take a moment and feel good about yourselves, okay? Lean back a little bit, slouch a little bit maybe, and just point up your index finger, you know? Let's point at that officer for a second and say, Ah, oh, you of little faith. Oh, you disbelieving officer. Doesn't that feel good? Just a little bit? You know, just sit in silent judgment of someone who could be so doubtful, so disbelieving of God. But while it's easy for us to get comfortable doing something like that, of course I'm going to turn the corner on us a little bit. Have you ever doubted God? Have you? Have you ever doubted that God could do something spectacular? Have you ever faced a challenge in your life so big that you didn't think God could do something about it? Have you? Have you faced something that seemed just sort of in that realm of impossibility that you just thought in your your head and in your heart of hearts that, you know what, not even God could change this? Have you ever thought something like that? Or maybe the more insidious thought. Have you ever thought this one? Sure, God could do something about that, but he probably won't. Sure, God could do something spectacular in my life, but he's probably too busy. Sure, God could bring a revival to Killarney, but chances are. Insidious thoughts all going back to disbelief. And here is where I want to make the first of our four applications from this story this morning. The first application is this. If you're taking notes, here is our first point. Unbelief blocks us from receiving God's blessings. Unbelief blocks us from receiving God's blessings. When we don't believe that God can or will do something spectacular, there are one of two things that will happen. The first one is this. God simply won't. God simply won't. He won't do something spectacular. Why? Because there was no one with the faith to actually believe him for it. Let me give you an example of this. In Jesus' ministry, when he was going from town to town, healing the sick, casting out demons, performing miracles, multiplying loaves and fishes, he was doing all these spectacular things, and he went to his hometown of Nazareth. And here's what it says. He couldn't do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Hmm. It wasn't that Jesus wasn't willing. It wasn't that he didn't want to do something spectacular or heal them. But their lack of faith made it impossible. How often does God not ache and long to do something spectacular? To just open the floodgates of heaven and pour out his blessing, pour out healing, pour out revival. How often doesn't he just long to shower his church with blessings so spectacular and so free-flowing that we're just swimming in them up to our, up to our necks? That's the character of God. He longs to shower us with these things. But how many times are God's desires to bless us blocked because we lack the faith to believe him for it? 
This is the first thing that can happen when we don't believe that God can or will do something spectacular. And here is the second. Sometimes God will do something spectacular in spite of our lack of faith. Sometimes he'll just do it anyways. But here's the catch. We won't be allowed to reap the benefits. You see, this is exactly what happens in the case of the king's officer. Listen to Elisha's response to him in the second half of verse 2. You will see it with your own eyes, answered Elisha. You will see it, but you will not eat any of it. And 24 hours later, after God miraculously delivered the city, we're just going to skip ahead to that part, knowing he's already going to do it. 24 hours later, God's miraculously delivered the city. Skip ahead to verse 17 and read what happens next. The king appointed his officer to control the traffic at the gate. But he was knocked down and trampled to death as the people rushed out. So everything happened exactly as the man of God had predicted when the king came to his house. Whew, that's a little heavy, isn't it? It is for me. It seems a little bit harsh, doesn't it? A little ungracious of God. But listen, my friends. God is a God of mercy and grace. Absolutely. Amen and amen. He is a God of love. God is love. But listen, unbelief in Him, which is the opposite of faith, God desires belief. He desires faith. But unbelief, which is the opposite of faith, it blocks our ability to receive His mercy, receive His grace and His blessing, not because God doesn't want to give it to us. He does. But because He won't force it upon us. And when our unbelief blocks us from receiving God's forgiveness and grace, the only thing left for us is to get what we deserve. And I think we all know what we deserve. I've talked about this before. What we deserve is nothing short of destruction. Hebrews chapter 10 points this out very clearly. Reuben read, read it for us earlier, and I'm going to read it for you one more time. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 38 and 39. It says this, My righteous ones will live by faith. Faith, belief. My righteous ones will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Notice that shrinking back, described here as the opposite of faith, results in God being displeased with us. And if it's followed through to its inevitable conclusion, it leads to our destruction. So what's the solution? It's right here in this verse as well. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Belief is the solution. Do you believe that? <laughs> belief is the solution to unbelief. Belief is always the solution when it comes to God. Do we believe God? Do we believe that He is who He says He is? Do we believe that He is capable of doing what He has said that He is capable of doing and has shown over and over and over again to be true? Do we believe? Do we believe that He can do it here in me? Belief is the solution. Are you shrinking back? Are you shrinking back like that officer? Or are you like Elisha, confident, believing that God will do something spectacular, maybe within 24 hours. Do you believe that he could? What if he wants to? 
What's stopping him? Unbelief blocks us from receiving God's blessings. But listen, belief is the key that unlocks the floodgates of heaven. Belief is the key that unlocks the floodgates of heaven. Our first application. Second application is this. We can't stay where we are. We can't stay where we are. I want you to return for a moment to those four leprous men. Stuck there in the middle of no man's land, they had to take honest stock of their situation. They had to be realistic. First, they realized that they couldn't go back to the way things were before. As much as I'm sure they longed for the day prior to the siege, maybe even before they had leprosy, I'm sure they thought back to the good old days, but they knew they simply couldn't go back. And they also knew that even if they got back into the city somehow, if they snuck in, it'd be no different. Everyone was starving to to death there as well. Now, as individuals and as a church, there is always a tendency to remember the past and long for the good old days back there. Back when everything was great and I was young and fit and happy and healthy and the church was full. And you know what? I hate to admit it, but I already find myself reminiscing about the faster 20-year-old version of myself who was playing college soccer who could sprint the full length of a soccer field and stop and turn around and sprint all the way back again almost as fast as the first time, barely breaking my breath. Okay, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit. (laughs) But today I can tell you this much, that I'd be happy just to run one length of a soccer field, (laughs) let alone running back. And forget about the sprinting part or the not losing my breath. You know, these things happen over time. We think back to earlier periods and we polish them up in our minds a little bit. And as a church, we can get caught up doing this as well. Many of us can think back to the early 90s when every pew in this sanctuary was full. And sometimes, you know, I still remember this. Tell me if I'm wrong, but people would even show up early just to make sure that no one sat in their pew and watch out if you did. The looks. I remember those days. But I can't go back to the 20-year-old version of myself And this church can't go back to the early 90s. Although the neon would be interesting. (laughs) Those four men, those four men knew they couldn't go back. They knew that where they were going to stay, if they were going to stay in front of those city gates, they knew that also meant death. Going back wasn't an option and staying put wasn't an option. Now, here's the tricky part. Staying put had a certain appearance of safety. If not comfortable, their surroundings were at least familiar. Oddly enough, we humans have a strong tendency to find comfort in what is familiar. Even when by all standards the circumstances of what is familiar to us aren't good, we tend to stick with what we know rather than forge ahead into the unknown. It's the reason why many prisoners who have already spent lengthy terms in prison, this is a documented thing, Many prisoners, once released from lengthy prison terms, often reoffend shortly after being released because the prison life is familiar and freedom is foreign. And so they would rather return to prison to what is familiar than to forge ahead into the unknown of freedom outside of the prison walls. The church can also get stuck in this mindset very easily. We've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. You ever said something like that before? It's like the church I told you about a while ago. Right next door to us in Cartwright, 
where an energetic young lady noticed that there was no Sunday school or youth ministry of any kind in the entire community. And so she decided that it would be a good idea to start a vacation Bible school. But when she approached the church board with her proposal, she received this reply. We don't have any children attending here, so we don't need a VBS. Talk about a self-fulfilling prophecy. Would it surprise you to know that that church closed its doors the very next year? Familiar. But it leads to what? Demise, destruction, the end. Personally and corporately, we simply can't stay where we are. As individuals, remember, the Christian life is never described in Scripture as a destination, but always as a journey. Jesus' invitation was never, feel free to stay where you are and just admire me from a distance. No, his call was radical. It was, if anyone wants to follow me, he must pick up his cross daily and come after me. It was always, come, follow me, be with me, journey with me. This is the call of the Christian. It is not a static life. It is not staying where we are. It is a constant journey moving forwards. And while the familiar always has this certain appearance of prudence, of wisdom, it is in fact the most dangerous option for the individual Christian as well as for the ongoing health and vitality of the church. So if we can't stay where we are, what do we do? What do we do? This leads us to our third application. We charge the enemy lines. (laughs) Does that sound like a good idea? Let's charge the enemy lines. They are way bigger and stronger than us, and we're starving to death, and I got leprosy, and and I'm emaciated, and I could barely throw a punch, let alone swing a sword, but let's charge the enemy lines anyways. Sound like a good idea? That's exactly what happens in our story. Because did you know that as Christians, you're fighting an enemy who has already been defeated? Did you know that? Have you ever thought about that? The inhabitants of Samaria didn't know it, but it was true. God had already caused the Aramean army to hear the sound of a large enemy suddenly bearing down on them. The sound of chariots and horses and swords and shouting and trumpets. And they were just so terrified by this sudden sound that they ran for it. They dropped everything and ran for their lives, literally. They didn't even bother bringing their gold or silver with them. They didn't even think it'd be faster getting on the horses because it says the horses were still there. They ran on foot, pell-mell in all directions. They high-tailed it. They got out of Dodge in a hurry. Not one soldier was left. God had already won the victory, but no one knew it. The enemy was already defeated, but there they were, huddled behind the walls, starving to death. God's spectacular victory, catch this, God's victory was so complete that all that was required for Israel to take the enemy camp was for four emaciated, starving lepers to go stumbling on in, and they won. That's it? No champion, no fighting, no hacking enemies, just four emaciated, starving lepers stumble into the camp, and the battle's over. They're free, they won. They're eating, they're feasting, they're partying, they're happy, they're safe. Just because four guys had the audacity to charge the enemy lines, even though they thought it was certain death, God had already won the victory. Did you know that God has already won the victory for you in your life? Listen to this. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 tell us this. 
Since the children have flesh and blood, that's talking about you and me, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. This is talking about Christ. He too, the Lord Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Wow! What a statement. He knows we're weak. He knows we're just flesh and blood, and we're not very strong, and so he's like, I'm going to identify with them. I'm going to become one of them. I'm going to die for them. I'm going to be raised from the dead for them. And by doing that, I'm going to defeat their enemy, Satan, once and for all. I'm going to defeat sin and death in one foul swoop. And so now, all we got to do is go stumbling on into the victory. He's made it so easy for us. But guess what? we've still got to move forwards. Had they stayed at the gates, had they stayed behind the walls, the enemy would have been defeated, yes, but they still would have starved to death. They still had to claim it. This is the call for us. Are we ready to claim what God has already done? Do we believe him? Or are we still huddled at the gates, too afraid to move, when God has already caused the enemy to go running? So therefore, claim the promise of Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So think about this. When you invite someone to come with you to church this week, you can be confident that God has already gone before you and is already working in that individual's heart. And whether or not they come next week, rest assured that by the Holy Spirit, a seed has been sown. And you've been a part of it. You moved ahead in faith. Do we believe that God's going to provide the results? Charge the enemy lines because God has gone before us and has already defeated the enemy. This leads us to our fourth and final application. Don't be a hoarder. <laughs> Don't be a hoarder. Most of you have either seen or at least heard of the TV show called Hoarders. Uh, it's, I think it's on TLC or something like that, the Learning Channel, apparently. Most of the shows don't actually fall in the, under that description. But anyways, if you want to learn about hoarders, watch TLC. And if you're not familiar with the show, you're probably familiar with the term hoarder. It's where people have every single room in their house stacked floor to ceiling with just stuff. Just junk. Like, if you've seen it, it's, it's actually kind of depressing. It really is. But the problem is they just can't let anything go. They're hoarding everything to the point where they can't even get through the rooms in their house because everything's just piled up. And probably no one here is that extreme, but probably some of us have more of a tendency to hold on to things than others. But hoarding, this is something that these four men in the camp were thinking about. The four lepers who had taken the camp, gone stumbling on in, had found so much food and treasure that they began to hoard it. They began to stash it away. And guess what? We Christians can do the same thing when we keep the bread of life to ourselves. When we don't share it with people who are spiritually emaciated and starving to death behind the walls. Thankfully, those four men were convicted of their sin of hoarding. And this is what they said. What we are doing is not right. Wow. A powerful admission. King Jehoram was not willing to say that. King Jehoram was not willing to say, what I am doing 
is not right. He couldn't get to that point. All he could do was blame Elisha. But here, four leprous men are willing to look in the mirror and say, what we are doing is not right. And listen to the byline. This is a day of good news, and we are keeping it to ourselves. And what did they do? They went and shared the good news with the city. And even though the city and the officials were skeptical, thought it was a trap, they eventually figure out that it's true, and the city is spared, but for the officer. (laughs) If you have found the bread of life, who is none other than Jesus Christ himself, then you are called to do the same thing. We live in a day of good news. (laughs) Amen? We live in a day, in a generation, in an age of good news, and we have the gospel of Jesus Christ right here in our hands today. We have the good news. And keeping it to ourselves, my friends, is not right. A man by the name of D.T. Niles described sharing the good news like this. It's our call to worship. It's just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Can we do that? Are you feasting on God's word in your life when you come to church on Sunday? Are you feasting on God's word day to day when you do your devotionals? I hope you are. If you're not, get into it. Eat. Drink. Soak it in. And if you're doing that but not sharing it, what effect is it having on your life? Because if we're just hoarding it, if we're stashing it away for ourselves and saying, you can't have any, God looks at us and says, I'm not pleased with that. I'm not pleased, and doing that is not right. So what are we going to do about it? What are we going to change? Like the four lepers, they realized they had to change their behavior. What are we going to change? What am I willing to change? I think it can start really simple and small. I think it can start with something as small as an invitation card. Saying, you know, we got a good thing going at church. We meet with God. I know it seems crazy, right? We're meeting with God here? But we are. I believe I'm meeting with God. I believe I'm speaking the words of God. Isn't that crazy? But I believe it. Come check it out. (laughs) It can start as easy as that. And you know what? I see a lot of faces here today who are here because at one point in time, they were invited. Hmm. What a thought. And think back. If 98% of Christians... Inviting people to church isn't a part of their life. And yet 80% of people would at least consider it if they were invited. We've got a very, very effective tool at our disposal that we're not utilizing. Why not? Do we believe that God wants to change lives? (laughs) Barb, does God want to change lives? He does. Amen. Because every single life that is changed is a miracle. It is something as spectacular as making an army run. When a life changes for eternity, that's not small, my friends. That is as spectacular as miracles come. When destinies and lives and hearts change, my friends, that is awesome. And I am so blessed that God is using this place to that end to bring people to himself, to change lives for eternity. And you know what? He wants to use you to invite people, to share the good news, because this is a day of good news. Let's share the bread of life. If you're a beggar who's received the bread of life for yourself, then just share. 
with someone else. Tell them where they can find it. Even if you can't speak the words, you're not an evangelist, that's fine. I'm willing to talk to them. (laughs) I'd love to talk to them. So invite them down. Let's make that our mission this week. Invite one person. If that's easy for you, invite two. If that's easy, invite ten. Challenge yourself. Set a high mark. And you know what? I'm going to put it out there because I believe in God. He's laid this on my heart this morning and I prayed for it and sometimes you've got to speak things. I'm believing that God will have 20 new faces here next week in this sanctuary. 20. That's what I have the faith to ask for. And I'm asking for it. Maybe God wants me to ask for more, but 20 is pretty, pretty tall order for me. But you know what? If 98% of us invited someone and 80% of them came, do the math. Is God able? Amen, he is. I'm believing him for it. Are you? Let's share the good news. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you looked at us, poor, wretched, emaciated, starving beggars, covered with the leprous sores of sin, deserving nothing other than just just destruction. And you looked at us and you saw something worth redeeming. As messed up as our lives are, and sometimes our thought lives, our inner lives, Lord, they just, we get so depressed by them. And why can't we do better? And we get down on ourselves. And Lord, you looked at us with all of our sores and all of our failings, and you said, there's a treasure worth redeeming. There's a precious son and daughter who I'm going to send my own son to redeem and to save. I'm going to defeat the victory. I'm going to defeat the enemy so completely, ensure the victory in such a radical way that all they have to do is just stumble on in, and it'll be theirs. All they got to do is just say, "Jesus, I believe. I believe you've died for my sins in my place on the cross, and that you rose from the dead, and and because of that, I too can live a new life with you and for you." And that life won't end with my my death in the grave, but it's going to go on in heaven for all of eternity. Wow, all we have to do is just stumble in, and it's ours. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you. It's not complicated. You've done it all already. And so, Lord, as one person who's received bread and holding it out to others who want more bread... I pray, Father, that we would be so filled with the bread of life this morning that as we leave here today, we would just hold out hands of invitation and say, hey, we know where you can go find some food. You want to come? You can sit beside me. We'll eat together. Oh, Lord, thank you that you've made it so simple for us. Give us the faith to not shrink back, but to believe and put it into action. Bless this church this week, I pray, oh, Lord and each one as they go. In Jesus' name, amen.